All right, welcome to this first episode, first episode, Christian, mm. of the Pat Davidson podcast. Maybe that's the name, maybe it's not the name. I feel like uh, people jump the gun. Like what you're saying, what you're saying is that everybody turned you down, right? Everybody else turned me down, <laughs> and I was like, "Who do I have left at the bottom of the barrel?" Oh, let's see if uh, Tibbs is doing anything here. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I uh, it's it's kind of funny. I actually. I feel like everybody and their mother has a podcast at this point, but honestly, I really wanted to get a chance to just talk to other people that I want to have conversations with. And I felt like this was a good outlet to be able to do that with. So there's really not that much other than that behind this. And it's funny, I, I you know, after I came up with the idea, I talked to a couple of people and they're like, well, what, what demographic do you want to target? What niche do you want to hit with this? And I was like, honestly, I don't really know. Uh, I kind of want to just have real talk with people that I want to have a conversation with. And that's the essence of this thing. And I think that you're a perfect person for that, quite honestly. And we haven't talked in quite a while. We, we did that Stronger Experts Roundtable right. on neurotransmitters. And, um, you know, I just felt like, what I took from that is that you are willing to say what you think. And a lot of people aren't. And I, I have no filter, man. I have no filter. Yeah. And the problem is that I've actually been wrong on many instances uh, because when you, you know what it is, right? When, when you're really passionate, you think you find like the solution, like, dude, I broke the code. And then you want to share it with everybody else. Right. And then you fuck, I forgot about like that aspect, that aspect, that aspect, and it's back to the drawing board. I mean, most, most, like, we, we all make mistakes, right? But the problem is that I make my mistakes publicly because I'm so eager to share everything. Yeah. But you know what? Like to me, I always, I, every time I raised my hand in class and got things wrong, when I found out the correct answer, I never forgot that particular thing. So, you know, there's something to it where when you make public mistakes, there's more pressure, there's more feedback from that. And there's much more of a, I don't know, it just creates a much stronger learning experience, ultimately, that you grow from. So to me, it, it really is like people don't have the balls to actually speak up anymore, you know, and it actually one of the, the one of the formal questions I wanted to ask you during this, it feeds right into this, actually. You know, you've been in this game for a while and you've probably seen concepts come and go, you know, training styles come and go, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, today, nowadays, there is this subset of humans and I would say they are know-it-alls, but they probably don't train. You know, and is do you think that's a new thing or do you think that they've always existed, but they didn't have the outlet of the Internet to make themselves actually known? I would say a bit of both, really, Um, probably more of the latter. Uh, But then again, uh, I think that one of the reasons is. Yes, social media and all those uh, internet stuff and things, but not for the reason that people think. Not because those people who did not have a voice now have a way to get heard, but rather because it actually made training more popular. Now, you can actually make a very good living being an expert, even if that 
expert level doesn't come with actually training people, which was kind of required to be an expert back in the day. Yep. So now people will say, well, I, I can actually be revered as an expert in something, if I just like come up with these theories, if I listen to the, uh, look at the science and stuff like that and act in a very guru way and make a very, very good living. And I think that that's where it can be frustrating for guys like you and I, who've actually spent most of our career actually in the trenches, training people, training ourselves and living the life. I mean, you can... I mean, you're still Jack. You still perform very well. I'm pretty much the same. So it's, to me, I'm not going to lie. It does piss me off when you have an expert. And and even if they're right, even if the information in some regard is actually correct on paper, okay? Well, you know what? You're basically just someone who's watched a lot of porn, but you're still a virgin, right? Yes. So at one point, I mean, it's nice to know all these tricks and tips from the pros. Well, you have to have fucked people to know how to pleasure a woman, right? Yeah. That's, wow. That's a great statement right there. Yeah, you could you can comment and talk about all the angles or whatever. Yeah, unless you've done it. You know what I mean? And like, it's funny, like one of the areas that I've seen pop up a lot lately are people that have, you know, they, they really want to try to modify exercises down to the level of like, you know, it's got to be this exact angle, it's got to be this modification, or it's a trash thing. And it's kind of like, you know, over the years, and, and it's funny, because uh, I was watching a video of Ronnie Coleman training at Metroflex with like the shoulder machine that he had there. And I was like, yeah. this thing has to be the worst looking piece of equipment I've ever seen, but it clearly grew his shoulders well enough. You know, what, what do you think are some of the more annoying trends that you've seen kind of come up through the years uh, or, you know, whatever kind of comes to mind on that? Well, two of them come to mind, like on top of my head, like real fast. The first one is, and that's actually what you mentioned is uh, like focusing on minutia. And I'm not saying it's not, important to some extent but you know what what the problem i see is uh, if you focus so much you have to have this exact angle the pulley has to be exactly here or there well you you might actually miss out on what i feel is the most important thing to get results is actually learning to feel what's going on in your body and my making micro adjustments to actually like make it work because not anybody any skeletal structure, uh, any muscle balance is exactly the same. I mean, the shoulder width, shoulder position, the way your bones are shaped, because bones actually can change shape depending on how they were uh, like stressed growing up and stuff like that. So what might look perfect on paper from a biomechanical standpoint might actually not work optimally for your body type. So, and it's almost like now you relying on feeling and what's going on in the body is almost a bad thing now because you're not relying on science. I mean, I like, I like science, but also like what, what is, is what I'm doing actually. Mike, because Rattel was saying something smart about like the best exercises. I mean, if you're doing a movement and you don't feel it in the muscle you're training, you don't get like a localized pump after your set provided that it's hypertrophy work. 
and you don't get sore in a muscle you train, well, you know what? Maybe the biomechanically perfect movement was not so perfect after all. Yeah. That's the, the, the second thing is uh, people are, are seeking novelty way too much. And they value novelty over uh, hard work. And I have a theory about this is maybe because some people are just in it for the gains, bro, not for because they love it, but also because they want gratification from their workout. And you actually mentioned that at in one of the roundtable we did, like you want your clients to have that dopamine spike from achieving something in your workout, knowing the workout was productive. But nowadays people train with such low level of effort, they, they basically just do random shit that just to feel satisfied, just to get that rush of dopamine or adrenaline or both, they need novelty rather than hard work and goal achievement. So that, that's my two pet peeves. People don't yeah, you know, I feel like both of those go into the same topic that I call feel versus real, you know, and trying to sift through, you know, the second point that you made, I feel like most of the people out there that work out in the general pop, like I would say just most of the people that work out on the planet are chasing feelings. You know, they want to feel like they sweated or that they had a burn or they had whatever. There's no concept beyond that. There's no like unifying idea about what training is, that it's this like directional pursuit that involves, you know, seeing numbers go in a direction or seeing yourself repeat the same. It's just that's a baffling concept for the majority of people versus like, oh, I got a great workout. in. Like based on what? Like what are we comparing it to? There's no... There's no rhyme or reason. There's no context. It's just kind of like this singular idea that they pulled out of the ether. And they based this appraisal of it being good on the way that it felt. And it's yeah. kind of like, this is not a real high level thought process going into this. And, and the, you know, the first one is something that I've spent a lot of my career working on. You know, like basically, uh, how do I create the setup for an exercise to actually deliver and train the target it's supposed to target. And, um, you know, the way that I try to create it is I try to standardize the positioning of the axial skeleton first in the sagittal plane. That's like, when I think about how I create an exercise, layer one is sagittal standardization. And I, I base this on trying to get a sense that the center of mass of the thorax is over the center of mass of the pelvis. And if that happens, it should visually look that way, but I confirm it with sensory checkpoints as well. Like if the pelvis is under the thorax, you should have an underlying level of hamstring and glutes that are holding it in that position. And to keep the thorax over the pelvis, you should have an underlying level of internal obliques holding it in that position. If I look at it and I see that and I hear the feedback from the person that they have those things, now let's superimpose the exercise on top of that. And I believe that will increase the probability that I'll target and train the appropriate tissues so that if it is mid back and lats on a horizontal pull exercise, because if you've trained people, you realize like you have them do something like that ask them what they felt. And it's like, it could be anything, you know? And so how do I ensure the likelihood that I'm going to hit it? 
That's my approach. So it's not even just the exercise itself. It's kind of like teaching the person the framework for where their center of mass should be in space. Now that I, now that they understand that, because technically I could make any exercise kind of a good exercise. A lot of times certain machines set you up better than others, but now you're basing it off of like whether or not you've got a good machine or not. I'd rather have more of a universal, like this person understands how to hit the target muscles with a plethora of exercises as opposed to depending upon certain pieces of equipment or setups or anything else. We have uh, like a peripheral or distal to proximal view, whereas they should have uh, a proximal to distal way of thinking about exercises. I mean, yeah. If the central aspect or if the proximal aspect is not fully under control, uh, it doesn't really actually matter that much what the distal portion is doing. Uh, yeah. Because down the road, there is no way you can have proper activation, especially when loads get fairly heavy. That's really it. And I think, so yeah, to me, it's like, what are the, what's the most important thing? And from a, at least a mechanic sense, to me, the most important thing is where is your center of mass space? Mm -hmm. And if I can actually have an idea, and of course, my, I, my theory, my model, it's, it's not evidence-based. I don't know anybody that's in the research world that even understands the concept, let alone contest it. You know, so it's like, I'm sure that it's something that could be criticized heavily by people that want to put themselves into that camp. But it's kind of like, look, like uh, if you've ever actually trained people, you know that like picking any exercise imaginable and the way that it's executed it's a, it's a complete crapshoot as in terms of what muscles the person's actually going to feel, you know, versus like, sometimes you see exercises done. You're like, this person clearly knows what they're doing. Like that's a beautiful squat. And it's like, you know, that their quads are going to get blown up. Their glutes are going to get blown up. But when you see a garbage one, it's like, Hey, what muscles did you feel? And you might hear anything come back at you. QL neck, you know, not muscles, back, knees. And, and honestly, just looking at the position the person is in, in the starting position or in the setup, you yep. know if the movement's going to be right or not. That's really I, it. Another 10. Yep. Now, you have a big golf background, correct? Dude, I, I picked up my golf club again today. Yep. Because I, I was, uh, what, what happened is, I, mean, I, I got really serious about playing again. All I, right. You, like three years ago, I spent the whole summer playing. Uh, putting was was really bad, but I mean, I was hitting the ball pretty well. And then I figured, well, I'm going to push this to the next level, right? So I spent the whole winter tailoring all of my training only to golf. I did like over speed work. I took my golf swing from 112 miles an hour to over 130. Dude, I was ready. That was, that's all I thought I was doing. Then I had my second kid. So, dude, there is no way I can justify playing golf three to five days a week when my wife is breastfeeding and we have two young kids at home. And then, of course, COVID, so we didn't have any daycare. So, yeah. But my wife said to me today, well, I want to go play golf again. Well, dude, that's all it took. I ordered a net on, on, on Amazon. I took my golf clubs out and I practiced in the yard today. So... Kind of, you know, first of all, it's nice to hear that you're getting a chance to get back out there because I'm sure that you had, you know, if you've got 
little kids during COVID time. That's uh that's a lot, man. You're 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 daddy of the year basically for an extended period of time. Well, you know what the the and sorry to go sorry to go off track, but you know that no, not at all. More left leaning a province or a state or country is, the more restrictive the measures were. Well, while Quebec makes California look like look like Texas, to give you an idea. Yeah. So we were basically in lockdown like for a year, like complete lockdown. Right. The only thing you could get to was the grocery store. It is really interesting that you bring that up in terms of like the responses that happened in terms of like, you would think that liberalism would mean potentially less restrictive policies, but it really couldn't have been anything further from the truth. Although I'm sure China is not particularly liberal <laughs> and, and they, they, uh, they had a pretty strong approach as well, but it, it, yeah, there were some draconian uh, approaches and then, and, you know, it's funny. It's like we're probably I love that episode one. we're going to go into COVID, but fuck it. I don't really care, quite honestly. Uh, I do wonder if we ever get a chance to really look at the numbers, if we could see like the places that kind of were I don't give a fuck about it, like Florida or some parts of Texas or whatever. Did they actually have worse numbers than the places that went into like complete lockdowns and like tried to control everything? Probably not, uh, I would imagine. And yeah, like the initial phase might have been a bit worse, but it, it evened out and probably got better because they developed better, uh, like, uh, population immunity. Yeah. And, and that's a big issue. I actually read a study on that conducted at the University in Canada. Um, I can't remember, remember which university, but what they found was that the lockdown actually made the populations more susceptible to the the. the, the the, the next variants because the body was just not building its own immunity. Sure. Yeah. You're like staying inside like the sickly kid from your neck. It's like Boo Radley from To Kill a Mockingbird. You know what I mean? Like everybody's inside, nobody's outside, nobody's ex- your immune system needs stimulation like any other system. Absolutely. Or it's going to weaken and atrophy just like any other system. That's why I lick subway poles every day. You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, you know. well, whatever works. Right. But, but yeah, but I think that, but, but I can understand though, like the reaction of the, 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 the either the governors or the the prime ministers or presidents that were overly conservative because you are facing that with that situation that you have no idea how bad it can get. So I, I guess they don't want to be the ones like if it turns really bad that didn't go far enough. They could. I mean, sure. nobody would have like like insight and like you can see what's going on in the future. But I really believe that those who were less restrictive ended up slightly on top of India. Look at Israel. Israel was extremely strict, mm-hmm. but they have some of the worst numbers per capita. Yeah, you know, it's like trying to stop the wind from blowing through town. You know, you can hide inside all you want, but it's coming, you know. Okay. Anyway, it's like uh, that's probably it's, – it's an unanswerable question. But I think it's, it's one of those ones where it's like – I don't know. Uh, the more human beings try to control things, probably the more we find out that our ability to do that is ex- way more limited than we ever could have imagined. I feel like it's like the, the essence of a lot of like stories from the beginning of time, you know, like fables and Greek tragedies and things like that. The hubris of the human of thinking that we're so powerful and godlike and we can control nature 
And every single time nature laughs back, like, come on, like, really, really, you really think you're going to do that? When you're training and trying to beat your body, you've heard that. I'm going to trick my body into doing this, dude. You're not going to trick shit. Yeah. I mean, your body is like three steps ahead of you. I mean, you you think that because you you have one cheat meal, you're tricking your metabolism into not like adapting. Yeah. Or like, I'm going to like play with with sodium and potassium when I'm going to peak for a a photo shoot. Dude, your body adapts a lot faster than you think it does. It might work once in a while because you got lucky. That's it. Yeah. You know, it's to me, it's uh, kind of like the the misconceptions I see so often in training are people that just again, they just have such a short sighted approach to things. You know, it's like they, they complete, like biology is so big. There's so many systems at play inside of your body and like they're ancient things. There's, they're, they've got like a level of wisdom that is from the eons of, of yesteryear to a degree that you can't even imagine. The amount of time these things have evolved and the degree to which they can kind of work with each other and, you know, pay Peter to rob Peter to pay Paul and mix match and do other things. It's, it's incredible. But if you really are going to get something to adapt, the consistent, like uh, the consistent nature of applying stimuli needs to be so paramount in the, the, the way that it's done. You know, from the perspective of nutrients, from the perspective of training stimuli, all those kinds of things. And the way in which people think like a splash of this or a dab of that is going to make a difference is pretty laughable, really. That's something that actually annoys me. Because I was actually working on, a, on an ebook uh, before the podcast, and it's actually just me answering questions of people. And the question I get the most is something, and you will relate because you and I are actually exactly like those people. I mean, we like to look jack, we like to be strong, but we also like to be athletic and fast and have mm-hmm. good condition. We, we are athletes. Uh, but, but anyway, so people ask me, well, how, how can I train in my week? How can I, I split my training during the week to like look jack, be athletic, move like an athlete and, and be strong as an ox? Well, dude, I hate to break it down to you, but you know, each one of these goals by itself is actually very hard to achieve. And it does require ideally very concentrated effort. That's where periodization comes in. I mean, but the thing is, and you'll notice the way the question was phrased. How can I split my week yeah. to all of that? Dude, you, you, you can't achieve that by micromanaging. You need to periodize your training cycles so that you can focus, give a very strong stimulus on one of those capacities for, for long enough for your body to achieve something worthwhile. Yes, you can like add other capacities trained at maintenance or introductory level, not to fall behind. But then your next cycle, well, you know what, a mesocycle, you switch around your, your main focus and you maintain yep. what's required. And it's a long-term process. And that's periodization. One of the best, most jacked and athletic and overall fit person I, I know, he's a friend of mine. He's like 55 now and he looks like 35. Still runs like a, a sub-electric uh, a sub 4740. Wow. Uh, he still benches in his in the 300, deadlift in the 400, squat in the 400. And the way he trains is, I mean, he's always trained like that ever since I've known him. And we're talking about like 25 years, is he trains by season. Yep. So, like in, in autumn, he trained essentially like a, a bodybuilder. So it's hypertrophy and some strength. 
Then in the winter, he essentially trains like a powerlifter. So it's strength and some hypertrophy uh, and, and some even some power work. Then he will train like an Olympic weightlifter during spring. So he does the Olympic lift, power version. He does strength work, no hypertrophy at that point. And during the summer, he trains like a sprinter. So he, and he will always like the, the last four weeks, three weeks of each cycle, he introduces the type of work he's going to be doing in the next. But that's introductory level, just yep. so that you can like start from a running start when a phase starts. And the guy is never injured and he's always progressing. But that's not something you can actually sell to people because you know what? You're not going to get everything in a month. Right. It takes years, but that's what periodization does. But it actually makes sure that you will reach your goal. And it also goes back to what you mentioned earlier. People don't measure. People don't assess. I mean, every one of my workouts, and I'm sure you're the same, I enter, uh, obviously, the exercises, uh, this, the number of sets, even warm-up sets, the load, the weight, uh, and my general assessment of, of the set. So you can actually calculate how much volume load you have per microcycle per session and where you need adjustment. I was I, like, I'm, I'm pretty darn lean right now, uh, but I want to build muscle. So I'm, I'm gradually increasing my calorie load. That, that's beside the point. But what happened is that I started to really feel run down. So I, I, like I was just like, my performance was still good in the gym. I was still hitting my numbers because my main lift is always periodized in advance, which load I'm going to be using. And I have more leeway on my assistance work, which I put more emphasis on hypertrophy. So going more to failure or proximity to failure. And I said, dude, I, I feel like I just can't recover. I mean, I'm hitting my numbers, but I feel like shit all day long. Yep. So let's look at, let's look under the hood. Let's look at the volume. And lo and behold, dude, like without even realizing it, my volume has crept up to 160 sets per week, work sets. Yep. And I know for a fact that I can't tolerate more than 100, 110 work sets per week. So I was way above. But because I was so uh, like focused on achieving my goal, I just kept adding stuff. Like, and it doesn't take much to go from 110 sets per week to 150. Mm-hmm. That's like two sets per week, per, per, per day, or three sets. And you know, it's not even adding work on every exercise. So I just like scale back way down to 90 sets and, and will gradually work back up. But now my strength is back up and I'm feeling great again. Uh, but I, how can you do that if you don't assess? So, I mean, look, like I, I totally get that. Like the last training block I did was a 22-week hypertrophy block. And by week 30 – you know, or by week 22, it had crept up to 30 sets per muscle group per week. You know, I just wanted to see, is this possible? And that is, that equaled somewhere around 430 work sets that week. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it was like 75 sets for upper body on the upper body days. I mean, it was gross, you know, but like I, it, from a quantitative standpoint, I gained nine pounds of muscle yeah. on a DEXA across 22 weeks. But that's the thing. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that it's not doable and that you right. don't progress. Yeah. I, I was in a caloric deficit, so that makes a difference. Big, di- big, big difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and also because, well, individual differences, but because I've done, I mean, I, I've done some crazy shit. My, my highest volume on bench press was 100 set on a bench in one workout. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> And like two days later, I hit a PR. Yeah. 
It, the, and that goes back to what you were, what you were saying. Right? Short-term gains or adaptations don't necessarily relate to the long-term. I've, I've had several athletes hit PRs and perform at their best when they were actually severely overtrained. Overtrained mm -hmm. in the fact that they didn't sleep well, they, they were pissed off all the time, they had no mental energy. So it's actually a stimulus that it still worked. I mean, even for me, my, I was still improving, but my quality of life wasn't there. It just tells me that it's not something that's sustainable. Right. I mean, I've had phases where for four weeks, I would train twice a day and with a very high amount of volume and load, but that's a short-term strategy. Nowadays, people, they don't understand that. They will, they will look at, okay, Kid or like Pat did 400 sets. So, well, you need 400 sets to grow. No, but right. you ramped up to that number right. and because that, you do need to ramp up volume load over time to keep progressing, especially for hypertrophy. Yep. I think for strength, it's more important to increase the strength of, of the stimulus in form of adding weight. And volume will actually increase by itself because, well, heavier weights is part of volume, but the actual number of sets might actually go down, if anything. But if you want to progress volume, you do need to have work over time. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, and, you know, trying to progress strength through more volume is you're just going to be thrashed. Too, like, too much central fatigue. So you, yeah. you don't recruit the fast food fibers efficiently. So, uh, yeah. So it, that, that's what people will look at this, like the science and they will say, oh, don't. so you need to increase volume over time to get bigger so they automatically equate that to i need more volume to get stronger i need more volume to get more powerful right uh, it, it's like training for hypertrophy training for strength training for power it's actually three very different ways of training different mm -hmm. type of muscle contraction different training zone but also different progression models uh, but the problem is that people either because they are intellectually lazy or because they haven't spent enough time in the trenches or training people, they want to apply the exact same principle to everything. It's like diet, okay? I mean, a, a keto diet might be good in some instances, like as a short-term fix for insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. Maybe if you want to fix chronic systemic inflammation, it can be helpful if you have food allergies, whatever. But it, now they try to apply it to every possible situation because intellectually it's easier to believe that you know what i don't have to understand how the body works i can just take that quick fix and apply it to everything and that just doesn't work because the human body as you mentioned is more complicated than that yeah you think you got to figure it out it's going to have a contingency plan and a backdoor strategy to solve for that reverse it turn whatever it is you know convert this into that and just it's like to me it's like the shell game you know, on the city streets where it's like, yeah. hey, which card is the thing <laughs> under? And it's like, whoa, I don't know. I lost it. You know, so it's kind of like when people talk about, oh, we're doing glycolytic work. It's like, uh, you're probably not. It, like, if you really think you've nailed down an energy system, I got news for you. You probably haven't. You, you have no idea what's going on under the hood in reality. You know, to me, it's like, are you making quantitative progress in like a domain yeah. of, of trainable movement? And right. if you are great, and if you think you know exactly what's adapting, you probably don't, you know. Yeah, but I'm doing hypertrophy for my slow twitch fibers only. I'm doing hypertrophy for my intermediate fibers. Right. I have to yeah. use number of sets and reps because the 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 
this muscle is more slow twitch dominant. Well, just what about just like just trying to progress over time? That That's seems it. To work. Yeah. That seems to work. Yeah, people get themselves in trouble when they try to slap a mechanistic explanation on things sometimes. And it's perfectly fine to be like, look, I don't really know, but I do see that this, if I train in this fashion, I'm making progress and that's working. It's, I have an idea about what might be going on, but I'm not going to like, you know, hang my hat on it exactly. Here's what I think this is, you know, and what I like, for instance, we kind of started off by saying, you're not afraid to put it out there. And um, it's fine to put it out there, but sometimes people jump all over it like, oh, I don't know. Uh, what I did have as a follow-up question there, though, is from a timetable. You know, like, I, I agree with you in terms of, like, the way that you outline periodization. I thought you put it very well, that there's all these variables. They're not all the same thing. You have to understand that there's fitness qualities, and those qualities are perishable. If they're not trained, they decline, and they need a certain level of stimulus to be able to maintain them. They need another level of stimulus to develop them. And so what have you seen over like for hypertrophy, how much time, like, first of all, have you seen like a certain amount of time that you have 20 weeks, 40 weeks that you can continue to kind of uh, make gains from training that, that particular variable and as a second one, uh, you know, have you seen about how much volume you need to maintain it uh, when you're not trying to develop it? The second one is easier because I have more data on that or actually more information about it is you require, depending on the person, obviously, like how long have you been training, uh, all that stuff. Uh, it's between like one quarter to one third of the highest amount of volume you reach in your training cycle. Okay. So to me, that seems to be like the number where you actually can maintain your muscle mass pretty efficiently. Um, sometimes it can give the illusion that you're not maintaining it because you don't create as much local inflammation. And like being inflamed, I think an inflamed muscle can actually give the illusion that you are bigger because, well, it swells the muscle up. Uh, also, volume might play a small might have a small impact on uh, how much glycogen you can store i mean you might upregulate glycogen synthase if you have a high volume of work and if nutrition is adapted then you can store a bit more glycogen making the muscle look fuller and if you have a stronger aggression on the muscle tissue it will also retain more fluid in the repair stage so when you decrease volume of work significantly all of that goes away so so it might give the illusion Mm. that you're carrying less muscle but in reality you're not losing muscle you can easily maintain with one third uh, of the volume you did in your training cycle as far as the, the, the length of the cycle uh the 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 period i've noticed and it's going to range what i know is between 10 and 20 weeks with most people and, and i know it's a very broad spectrum but i think it depends on uh, some people individual work capacity uh, like if someone has a very large training experience and they also modulate their training or ought to regulate properly, or if the cycle was planned conservatively, you can extend it to 20 weeks. I mean, to me, the under, underlying principle is that you have each person has a limited amount of volume they, they can do in a week. And the goal is to get there and to through physiological adaptation, 
increase your capacity to sustain more volume over time. Okay, but that's like from cycle to cycle, year to year. Uh, and so, especially for hypertrophy work, strength is different. If anything, strength, you should probably decrease the number of sets you're doing as you're getting older and older and more experienced and stronger. Because, well, if you are lifting for strength, let's say even if you're training at 85%, if your 85% is 600, then it's greater systemic stress than if that is 300. So, so that is to be taken into consideration. But if you're training mostly for hypertrophy, the goal is to gradually increase volume over time. Uh, then you need to have it that, to reach that ceiling, but no higher or a slightly higher, but for like two weeks. Like you can end your cycle with two weeks, 10% or so above what you, what you thought or what you know is your maximum tolerable volume, because that's what over the long run will push up your capacity to tolerate volume. So, so how much volume you can tolerate has a great impact on the length of the training cycle. Because let's say you can tolerate 60 sets per week because you have a busy lifestyle, because you work a physical job, then there's only so much volume you can add to reach 60 sets per week. So you can't start at 10 sets per week. I mean, that's not going to stimulate anything. So maybe you need at least 40 sets. Now you can only add 20 sets throughout your training cycle. So you can't really do that for 20 weeks unless you want to progress really, really, really slowly. So you might, it might be smarter to use a shorter cycle than have your deload and then start the next cycle. And I, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the recent study by, by, by Dr. Schoenfeld, and it actually might proves, quote unquote, something that I, I felt was true for a while is that the value of a deload after a cycle is not so much recovery, although it does play a role, it's resensitizing the muscle to the stimulation. And people say, well, you don't lose sensitivity. Well, yes, you do, because the mTOR response, which obviously is what triggers protein synthesis, gets lower and lower and lower the longer you spend training at a certain level. So the deload, what you really, and the same study found that after two weeks, of very little training to no training, you can recover almost all your sensitivity. So the real purpose of a deload, greatly reduce volume. Like I would, I would go as low as 20%, 25% of the max uh, volume you reach in your cycle that will reestablish sensitivity by making mTOR sensitive to training again so you can start a new training cycle and gain again. If you just keep training harder and harder and harder, you know what? You don't get the response anyway. If you're natural, you don't get the protein synthesis you need to adapt and it becomes a waste of time. Uh, so the, the real reason why would be, well, you stop your training cycle when the mTOR response slows down. Obviously, we can't really measure that. Mm -hmm. So I prefer to err on the side of being more conservative. But as, as long as you can actually increase volume while still feeling good and seeing improvement in the gym, to me, it tells me, you know what, well, you still have something in you. I mean, if you stop progressing, or like me, if adding more volume runs you down, it's probably time to deload and start a new cycle from a lower level. You know, the, the sensitization concept is one I find to be so big that is so missed across the board. And, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm thinking about putting together training blocks, I always think about block minus one in some ways. You know, it's like 
what's happening in the block before the block I'm going to program in? Because this block over here that I'm going to be doing, let's say it's, it's going to focus on hypertrophy, easy variable to talk about. I want to make sure in the block before that one, I bring volume down as low as I possibly can while maintaining tissue so that I have the greatest level of potential sensitivity to work up into. Because I want that block to be long and fruitful. And if I start down here with sensitivity in the basement, I, and I just give it enough stimulus so that I actually get an effect, it didn't take that much stimulus. And I have so much runway to add volume and stimulus to. And um, But the big thing to me is making sure that you didn't lose tissue while you were trying to reestablish sensitivity. And that's where like that maintenance level training intensity and volume is such a big one. And, and I think a hard problem to solve for in a lot of ways, like you were, you were talking about like false positives uh, or false negatives in some way, like, oh, if you lose glycogen, if you drop inflammation, those things can make the tissue look like it's shrinking. And that's why I, to me, the gold standard is still strength measurements. You know, right. are you holding on to your barbell numbers while your volume is decreasing? Because mm -hmm. if you are, I mean, what do you think is moving the weight? It is yeah. muscle tissue. Right. Um, so I, I need to, like, I'm, I'm just a big believer. Like, if I'm going to drop volume for you and give you maintenance for this particular variable, you better work your ass off for me to hold it. Because this stuff, it's, it's only, it's, it's, uh, I, I look at it, it's like the peacock of the human race. Like, those feathers and all that, it's costly from an energetic standpoint. Like, uh, you don't really need this tissue. You know, your body is like, I will gladly drop off this muscle tissue if I can, because it's energetically costly. From an evolutionary standpoint, it's kind of unnecessary in the modern world. Uh, I have to feed it. It's expensive shit. So if you don't make me keep it, I'm going to get rid of it ASAP. Right. Um, so... I would love to be able to do one set per week of something and hold on to all that tissue, whether or not that's enough, you know, probably not. But if you work hard at it and you mm. really give a great effort, it might hold. But really, I, I think underappreciated big time topic is that sensitivity area, yeah. you know. And really, let's be honest. Okay? Maintenance is the hardest thing to do. It's the hardest thing to do. I yeah. mean, if we plan, I, and that's true for training, that's true for fat loss. I mean, once you get lean, okay, it's actually much harder to maintain that what well, it shouldn't be. I mean, because mm -hmm. once you're there, it's just a matter of not adding or losing fat. But you have to be so precise and you need to look at data. You need to, so it's a lot more complicated and unmotivating. To, to, to not sexy, not yeah. sexy. Maintenance yeah. is the most unsexy shit. Yeah. But well, why am I training if I'm not going to progress, right? But you know what? If you want to progress long time, you need to plan periods where you actually focus on just staying the way you are, doing yes. as little as possible while still like being you by not decreasing your capacity. That's literally the secret to long term progression. Mm hmm. You know, people are starting to get the concept of the reverse diet. You know, it's becoming more popular. The general population gets it. To me, if you can slap the idea of the reverse diet on training, now you're really cooking because it's the same. It's just 
it's a reverse reverse diet though. You know what I mean? Like, how can I stay this strong and do less and less and less right now? Right. You know, if I do so little, then I'll probably lose this stuff. But ultimately, like, you know, to me, I'm always, I get excited when I hear about people saying, look, like I've figured out I can do such a small amount of work for this variable and hold it. Awesome. How, how little can you do to actually mm-hmm. keep that baseline level of fitness that you work to get up to? It, it, to me, it's almost like climbing a mountain. You know what I mean? Like you go up and then you, you're like, okay, we're going to stay here for the night and you're going to camp out there. And same thing with training. It's like you worked hard to get up to here. If you work, you might be able to get a little bit further, but you're going to have to work so hard. It's going to be like almost pointless, you know? So just stay here. And how long can we stay here at low energy levels and really resensitize and regather the strength to be able to make that next big push? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while we're there, we can still do other stuff. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Because, I mean, it, I'm not, it, when we mention and, and we're speaking the same language, sadly, it doesn't make for a really good debate, but that's how it is, right? We're not talking about not training hard anymore. We're not, we're talking, because as I mentioned earlier, the real goal of a quote-unquote deload or maintenance phase or whatever you want to call it, is not so much recovery. It's resensitization to a form of stimulus. So once we accept that, it's still possible to train really, really hard because recovery is not the main issue. I mean, you, you can, we can, you can fix recovery in three to five days, unless you are like in a severe state of overtraining where, which you should never reach anyway. So it really becomes a matter of I'm reducing that variable to resensitize my body to, to, to it, to the future, the stimulus in the future, but I can still train really hard to bring up something different. So that then when you are switching to your new training cycle, well, you have a little bit of something new that you acquire that you that will still be there and you can work on maintaining. That's how you can become bigger and more athletic at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now, have you seen uh, certain kinds of fitness qualities work really well together versus other ones that like you should not combine these two things Absolutely. at the same time? Well, you know, you're aware of what, what, what's often called like interference. Yeah. In and I mean, it's debatable whether they're real or not. I believe that they are. Uh, and I believe that from working with athletes who actually need a high level of these qualities. I mean, people might think that cardio or like cardio, energy systems work or like aerobic activity can. You interfere. can call it cardio. I still call it cardio. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, combined, especially like like in proximity to to strength training, will will decrease adaptation to strength training and to hypertrophy. And people will say, "Yeah, but you know, I do twenty minutes of cardio after my workouts, and and I progress." But you know, that's not cardio training. Cardio training, there's a difference between doing a physical activity to a level that is sufficient to maybe get some health benefit or just do some shit and training it to the level required to actually get a significant training effect. Like if you are a marathon runner, you're doing cardio training. You're not doing 20 minutes on a treadmill at a moderate pace after you're lifting. So yeah, doing 20 minutes of like low intensity or even fairly high intensity work 
after you're lifting, it's not going to have a significant impact on, on your gains. That's not interference. Interference is I'm trying, I'm training my balls out to take one quality and bring it up as high as possible. And the matter of fact is that you can't combine every physical capacity I, 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 together at the same time. I have four groups uh, 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 of training, and they are basically methods or, or ways of training or uh, like intensities, whatever you want to call it, that are grouped depending on physiological and neurological effect. Like, for example, what will be the effect on muscle fiber conversion? Because there's such a thing, and like in the past, like methods used to measure fiber type were like archaic, so the data wasn't conclusive. But newer data show that you can even have uh, up to 10% conversion of slow of intermediate or hybrid fibers to fast twitch fibers of 10% in four weeks. So, so it, it, conversion is real in both cases. Now, for example, group one would be all your extremely explosive work which will favor more of the 2X fibers. So the, both the 2As uh, and even the hybrid fibers move to the right, like toward that 2X profile. Whereas if you do strength work, it will move more toward the 2A profile. So the 2X become 2As. So from a strength perspective, the 2As and 2X are, are pretty much the same strength, but the 2X will have a slightly faster contraction speed. Bodybuilding work tends to favor more the hybrid fibers because the type of work requires both a, a strong contraction and a fairly long duration of work. So they need to be more fatigue resistant. I mean, I'm not saying you're going to morph completely your fiber type, but there can be mm-hmm. some changes. Uh, and of course, the endurance athlete will favor a conversion toward a slowage profile over time. So these are your four groups. Uh, so if you keep to the same group, you have zero interference. So, for example, if you do explosive lifting, like uh, Olympic weightlifting, if you do plyometrics, if you do sprinting, if you do resistance sprinting, uh, if you do throws, I mean, you can mix match all of that and you're not going to have any negative impact. You can mix it pretty well with the group next to it. So group two would be the 2A focus group. So it would be more heavy, heavy lifting. It could be uh, like, uh, compensatory acceleration training with 70% or so, all that kind of good stuff, uh, then there's very little, if any, interference, okay? Now, if I'm combining group one, which is the purely explosive work, with group three, which is bodybuilding work, hypertrophy work, uh, more of the, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the glycolytic system, like efforts lasting anywhere between 30 to 70, 90 seconds, very intense. Then there's some interference because, well, both require adaptation in slightly different or opposite directions. So, but, but it's still doable, although I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, but combined- you're kind of of the mindset though that the more divergent or different the, the time or the, the intensity, the more interference there's going to be. From that perspective of, of uh... that, that, that's one part because that's the muscle fiber conversion part. There are other yep. factors in the play, uh, like the impact, uh, and because that's the more of the um, adaptative interference. Yep. Like if I ask my body to adapt in a certain direction and another direction from a muscle fiber perspective, you might get well basically no change. 
So it's, you're still progressing because you're still improving the capacity of those fibers. There's so mixed messages, though, so they don't go yeah. in a direction because the messages yeah. are scrambled. So you can still improve. I mean, the proof is in pudding. I mean, you have CrossFit athletes yep. training opposite, and they're still progressing, okay? But they won't be getting the best results in each category. So that's the difference. I mean, when we say there are interference, it doesn't mean it can't work. It depends mm-hmm. on what you want. I mean, right. if you really want to push one thing as high as possible, focus on that capacity. Give yeah. the body a strong and unambiguous message of what you want it to become. Okay, uh, but there are also other factors other than that adaptation profile, and it could be, for example, the impact of central fatigue. Uh, like, for example, if I do, uh, and volume seems to cause more central fatigue than load. Uh, so, for example, if I'm doing cardio, hard cardiovascular training, I mean, not 20 minutes on a treadmill or uh, loaded carries. I mean, I'm, I'm talking like I'm a marathon runner and I'm training for a marathon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on a Monday, even if you're fully recovered physiologically the next day, you will have a weaker activation signal from the central nervous system to the muscles, and it's going to be harder to recruit the fast-switch fibers. So even though you're not fatigued from a feeling perspective, you're still getting weaker recruitment of the muscle fibers, lower firing rate. It's harder to reach maximum activation and you make the strength training less effective. Uh, I mean, people think in terms of doing the cardio or, or after strength training will hurt adaptation to strength training. I believe that it's a bigger interference to do the cardio the day before or even the day of, like you're doing hard cardio in the morning and lifting in the afternoon, that will have more of an interference effect than doing the cardio afterwards. Not because, because in the second case, the theory is that like the AMPK will inhibit the hemtor, and we know that's mostly not true because the mTOR response is very short-lived from strength training, like 30 to 45 minutes, it's a pulse. Uh, people get this idea that the more mTOR activation that you get, the better. So they like uh, they, they try to actually increase mTOR as much as possible throughout the day, whereas yeah. it's actually a bad thing because yeah. it desensitizes your body to mTOR. Mm-hmm. So unless you do your strength work and your or your hypertrophy work combined with the energy systems work, meaning like you would do, for example. Uh, strength, then you do uh, hard cardio, then strength, and hard cardio, then strength, and hard cardio, I, I can, kind of like in a, in a complex fashion, then yeah, yeah. the MPK might interfere with mTOR. But if you do strength training, then maybe rest five, 10 minutes, like just take some water, then you do your cardio, the MPK is not going to interfere with the anabolic response. I don't believe mm-hmm. so. Because mm-hmm. the mTOR response will basically spike, start spiking when you start your workout. And by the end of the workout, like 50 minutes later, it's down. So, so and protein said it has been triggered. Once it has been triggered, it won't stop because you have AMPK. In fact, AMPK might help in some regard. Uh, so but I really believe that doing the endurance work first will hurt more by decreasing the quality of your strength work. But again, we need to be like, and, and people will, will listen to this and you know how they are. Uh, Tim said that you shouldn't do like your 15 minutes warm up on a treadmill on the rower because it's going to hurt your gains. Dude, right. that's what I'm saying. Like injured training is not the same thing as what we do most of the time in the gym. It's training to improve aerobic capacity. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's very interesting. Like I got two kind of areas that I think pop out with this talk. One is you, you use that term quality at the end. And and that's something I'm always trying to think about in terms of how I actually put together training sessions, because there are these mixed sorts of signal things that come into play when you are not, I don't, I'm not a bodybuilder. I'm not a power lifter. Like that's not all I train for. I train for, I want muscle. I want to be athletic. I want to do all these different kinds of things. So I need an element of aerobic conditioning. I need an element of strength. I need an element of speed, blah, blah, blah. And you know, when you train in that fashion, you begin to realize how you can impact the quality of each modality. And you learn how to arrange them in a way that logistically allows you to hit quality, 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 quality. You know, uh, typically you would think you would want to go faster at the beginning of a session and then go slower as the session goes along. And for me right now, I have to do it the opposite. And it's because it's going to be really hot training outside running sprints. And if I train outside run sprints, I can't do anything after that. You just crush the sun, the heat, it destroys you. You're, you're done. Your brain is cooked. So it's like I can train inside in air conditioning with strength training and med ball throws and things like that prior to going outside and running sprints. And I can still get quality sprints in. Right. After I strength train and I have enough of a time gap because of how long it takes to get to the track from where the gym is so that there's a bit of recovery. There's some fluids and some nutrients that I can get into my system. I feel fine and fresh. And if I time runs, they're basically the same time. The quality is not decreased, even though a textbook might say do it the other way around. Do your faster well, stuff before your slower strength stuff. So it's just when he was working with Ben Johnson during AF the season, you would always do weights before sprints. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, the second area that kind of popped in my head from what you were talking about was Charlie Francis's stuff. And, you know, I know that, you know, he looked at it like, look, like if I'm training sprinting, if like speed starts, acceleration, if that is the, the thing that I really need to develop, that is like, those things have their own fitness qualities to them. You know, like, the start in the first 10 meters of acceleration is strength dominated 10 to 20 is, I think he called it something along the lines of like speed, strength, or power. He had some different words, power, speed. Uh, and then as you get to top speed, it's elasticity as the dominant factor with speed, but overall it's running fast. You know what I mean? Like to not overcomplicate it, we're going to run as fast as we possibly can and accumulate as much volume of, of sprinting work as we can in a season to truly develop these athletes the best we possibly can. And, and I know his views on lifting weights was he really wasn't a big fan of Olympic lifting or of doing fast barbell work because it was kind of like, you know, there's a limited pool of explosive activity that I can do. And I want to make sure all of it goes into running. You know, the more that I pull out of that pool and have barbells replace it, well, that means I can't do as much running. And these athletes are sprinters. They're not weight room athletes. And so I always found that to be a fascinating thought process in regards to interference, that actually interference can kind of come in the same sort of signaling network with just different modalities. Like, do you have such a specific task? that you have to compete in. And if you do, 
maybe it's not that wise to train with other modalities in the same sort of energetics or velocity or vector land as your primary task domain. You know, use weights in a different vector range. Like, he, you know, he was just kind of like, we lift weights to get strong and muscular. We don't lift weights to get fast. We run to get fast. We lift for muscle and strength. Yeah. And um, so I don't know, like, I don't know if that, that triggers anything. Yeah, actually, when I work with sprinting type athletes, uh, that's exactly my mentality. I'm going to use the, the bobsleigh guy's example because bobsleigh, well, people who don't know bobsleigh, they're just guys going down the track in a sled. But in reality, they are essentially sprinters. Uh, in fact, the most important assessment when they pick the team is the 30-meter sprint. Mm-hmm. That's what has the, they look at body weight to 30 meter sprints ratio because you want somebody who's heavy because the heavier you are, the faster the sled goes down. And, and obviously you, you do have a limit of weight that you can have with sled plus crew. So if the crew is light, you have to put weights in the sled to not be at the disadvantage opposite to the heavier crews. So obviously the heavier sled is harder to push. So there's an advantage to having bigger guys, Mm. but they need speed. So that's where the body weight and 30 meter sprint ratio comes in. And my guys, I I do use Olympic lifts sometimes, but it's mostly as a strength tool. I mean, they they are snatching over 300. I'm I'm not using them as a power exercise. And that's that's a misnomer anyway, because when you look at the barbell velocity of a typical Olympic lift, Yes, it's faster than a squat, than a deadlift, than a bench, but it's not what I would qualify as speed strength work. It, mm. It's going to be in the 0.9 to 1.1 meter per seconds, which is still very slow compared to plyometrics, yeah. which will be in the 1.8 or 2 meter per seconds, especially with high-level athletes. I mean, you can go up as low as 1.5 with lower qualification, but it's still a lot faster than 1.1 or 0.9. So if what you want is to develop that speed, it's plyometrics. Uh, Or very end of that spectrum, it's loaded jumps with 10, 20% of your maximum. Again, people go way too heavy on jump squats. That's stupid. The goal is to see how much weight you can leave the floor with. It's to use maximum power, and maximum power is at roughly 15% of of your max squat. Um, The one caveat I will have is that uh, Charlie was obviously working with people who who, who were pure sprinters. So they were doing a lot of speed work already. So the way the the week was then, they had two or three max output session so like max top speed depending yep. on the, the the part of the year it would either be like working on acceleration or working on top speed so anywhere between like 30 meters or less from 60 to 100 meters and then they had two speed what, what he called special endurance session which was essentially yep. 200 and 400 meter sprints um and they were not all out so that's like but that's still a lot of high speed work because even Tempo work in sprinting, it's still faster than Olympic weightlifting. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a kind to saying, well, I'm training a basketball player. I'm in the season. Let's do depth jumps and plyometrics in the gym. Dude, they're already fucking doing 200 jumps every practice and every game. 
Yep. I mean, don't in training you train what your sport needs, but doesn't train directly. It's like MMA guys who do who do tons of sparring round, who, 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 who does do a lot of conditioning work in the MMA practice, slanting all of their training in the gym to conditioning. I mean, that's literally not. I mean, you are already getting a lot of that. I mean, if it's still a deficit. Maybe do some of it, but really what you should be thinking of is what do I need for my sport that my sport practices do not train? And sprinter, their sport practices train speed and explosion. So they don't need speed and explosion in their lifting programs unless they are in a training phase where they are not sprinting. So, for example, with the bobsleigh guys, because we live in Canada, uh, we don't have, and now it's better because we do have some indoor track here and there, but most of these guys are from towns with, with no indoor track. Same thing with the football players I'm training. So during the winter months, we need some, por- some form of explosive work in the gym. That's not going to improve sprinting per se, because sprinting is super technical. The intramuscular mm-hmm. coordination is so like minute that you need to practice sprinting to be good at sprinting. Okay. It, it, it's, uh, it's false to believe that just by doing explosive work, you're going to run faster. I mean, you you will run a bit faster. Yeah, the specificity need, is incredible. Actually, yeah. Especially with, with, with high-speed movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, strength or speed, rather, is really movement-specific. You need to practice a movement you want to be fast in if you want to be fast in that movement. Now, you can get a little bit faster just by becoming more powerful because you have a bigger engine. Your muscles do contract faster. But if you really want to get faster, you need to run faster. So when you can't do that, well, the next best thing is to do explosive work in the gym. That's not going to be optimal, but at least once you can run, well, you build some stuff that will be useful once you're able to start sprinting again. So you're starting from a a higher um, higher bottom. What are some of your favorites when it comes to trying to do some you know, bad weather work to keep people fast. Yeah. Well, it obviously depends on the facility. I mean, I, I, now most facilities now do have sleds and crawlers. Yeah. And the use of sleds and crawlers was controversial in sprinting. Uh, and Charlie even wrote himself that he does not like uh, overload work for sprinting because it changed the movement patterns. Yeah. And that's true for top speed work. Like any, like, the, the reason is that when you're sprinting with uh, when you regular sprint, I mean, the, the first 30 meters, your body position is like leaning forward, like your hips are behind you and, and your, your shoulders are, your body is more parallel to the floor. That that's the acceleration posture because you want your strength to be behind you. Like you're more than be able to push as hard as possible into that floor. The more speed you have, the more you will start to raise up. So, for example, the first 10 meters, you're very horizontal. Then from 10 to 30, it's going to be a mix. Then from 30 to 60, it's more upright. And then from 60 to 100, you are even like sometimes leaning back Mm -hmm. because leaning forward favors speed, favors uh, pushing hard in the ground. So the amount of power you're producing in the floor, but it shortens uh, stride length. It favors stride frequency, but decreases stride length. When you reach your top speed, what you want is the longer stride 
as possible. That's how you maintain your top speed. And to do that, you need to be more upright to be able to reach more forward. So, so what the, the, the sled and the prowler do is it forces you to stay in that 10 meter position. Uh, what the, the, the recent studies, and that's one area where studies were actually interesting uh, and useful is that they found that loaded sprints with a prowler or a sled, I would probably prefer a sled because you can still have the upper body oh, action. Arms, yeah. uh, have a really positive impact on error anywhere between 10 and 20 meters. After that, it can actually be detrimental. Mm-hmm. But for an athlete, I mean, I would, I would periodize the, the mesocycle so that when he doesn't have access to a track, that's where we do acceleration work. So we focus the training on that first 20 meters. So that, that means building a lot of strength in the legs. Uh, yeah. uh, and again, I'm, I'm going to be uh, like controversial here. I would probably favor partial squats for that purpose. I like full range squat earlier in the prep to build. I feel, I feel, and again, that's my opinion, that full squats are slightly superior for hypertrophy because you do get more of a stretching of the muscle fibers. So the eccentric phase becomes a bit more effective. Uh, so, and might strengthen the tendons a bit more, more muscle balance, whatever. But when it comes strictly to building applicable strength for activities like jumping and sprinting, 90 degrees or a bit lower is better. It's called the accentuation principle. You, you basically train the range of motion you're going to be using in your sporting activity. And of course, because you're shortening the range of motion slightly, you can use greater loads. Again, the goal is not to build, build big muscle at that point, it is to be as brutally strong as possible in the range of motion you need. So, so that would be part of my acceleration phase when I want to build acceleration. And, and so, so that would be there. I, w- I would use personally Olympic lifts from blocks or from hang, depending on what I want to improve. There's a slight difference in training effect between both. I mean, it might be minutia, but from the blocks, it, it simulates a bit more the takeoff from blocks. More that because, isometric start. There's no exactly. preload. Yeah, it, you have to really create that starting strength, not the rip exactly. toe, but exactly. like the technical terms, starting strength. Yeah, exactly. you know, exactly. and there's more of a, uh, uh, everything is saying the same thing yeah. at that. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 a more uh, harmonious conversation from the signal that you're giving from every right. drill. 100%. You know, during this phase of training, this is what we do. Right. And uh, and now oh, it's like one big goal. I mean, the way I the way I look at periodization for an athlete is I have that the top goal. I want to improve my sport. So obviously you need to analyze what that sport needs. It might need five different things. And now it's a matter of, and these five things become their own individual goal. So you need to improve all of them. And you need the, the second step is to create an hierarchy of goals because some goals, when you achieve them, will help you achieve a higher level in other goals. Like getting, like building muscle will help you get stronger. I mean, yep. if you're a sprinter, you don't want to look like a bodybuilder, but look at sprinters, they do have a above average muscle mass. So you need to assess, does my body requires more muscle mass than it does now 
for what I'm trying to accomplish? If the answer is yes, then that's one of your goals. And mm-hmm. it's probably going to be one of the earlier goals in your training cycle because it will help you get stronger. And if you're stronger, it helps you become more powerful. So, so it, the, the getting strength would be earlier than focusing on power. And power will help increase speed and agility. So again, it's a, it's a hierarchy of goal. So of course, some sports are more complex than others. Some people, some sports are really simple. Like powerlifting is super simple. Weightlifting is a bit more complex, but still simple. Sprinting is, I would say, fairly simple. Bobsleigh a bit more complex because the strength element is more important. Uh, you have sports that are extremely complicated, like uh, rugby, for example. Yeah, those are tricky. Soccer, yeah. basketball. You know, Basketball is what I call a centaur sport because the upper body does not need the same thing as the lower body. Mm. And I actually did a presentation on that exact topic at the high performance basketball symposium. Uh, The lower body of a basketball player, the end goal is explosiveness. You need to be explosive. And when I mention explosive, it obviously encompasses agility because agility is explosiveness displayed laterally. Uh, so that's your end goal. And to achieve that end goal, you need to be as strong as possible with as little extra muscle mass as possible. Mm-hmm. It's different than the upper body because you don't need to be super powerful in the upper body. You're not going to throw that basketball 200 mm-hmm. yards. You're not trying to pass through somebody. What they need is actually more hypertrophy mm-hmm. because more upper body size when you have those one-on-one matchups under the, uh, under the rim and you're trying to fight for rebounds and for, for position, a bigger upper body is a distinct advantage. So mm-hmm. the prioritization for upper and lower would actually be different in a training cycle because mm-hmm. the end goal is different. So every step to get to or intermediate goal will be different. So, and then, of course, you have the energy system that come into play. So it's actually a pretty complex sport to train. Rugby mm-hmm. would be even more complex because the cardio – and strength and size combination is unheard of. There's no sport. Right. Doesn't really make a lot of sense. When no, you exactly. Get down to it. Yeah. You look you at know, the bigger guys are actually running more than the smaller guys because they have to follow the ball all the time. Oh, and then get in the scrum with it once it stops. Yeah. You know, I, I think that we're, um, I, first of all, I love the fact that we've been able to have like a real science, you know, sports science training conversation. It's, it's always nice. This is, this is what I wanted to do this for. Um, you know, I, I, I know that from a time perspective, I'll, I'll try to bring this towards a, a wrap up. So, you know, I'm kind of curious when you look back through your training career, you know, is there any time period that you look at and you're like, that was some of the best training, the yeah. best sort of a, uh, a thing that you had gone through? Like what, what kind of comes to mind for you there? Easy, easy. Okay. Uh, that was... The, uh, okay, just a brief, that's going to be like a brief recap of my training history. I, tra- I started training like very young, but because I was a fat boy, I just wanted to be like muscular. But, but my first real training started when I, I started high school and I only trained legs, if anything. I, I trained legs every single day because I wanted to play football. I figured, well, I need to run fast. So mm-hmm. all I did was train legs. I would do every single leg exercise in the school gym. Then I discovered that girls like biceps. So I started like, I'm excessive. So I stopped training legs. I only train upper body. <laughs> but, but if you look at the more of a general outline, uh, 
at first I was training for football. Uh, when I stopped playing football, because I'm, I'm, I'm 5'8", I'm not going to play in the NFL, so I played college, that's it. Uh, I transitioned to Olympic weightlifting. Okay. Uh, and that was my main training for six years. I competed up to national level, but had some bad experiences. So I actually stopped that sport. Now, the best training came right after that. Mm. It's actually where I hit my, my best snatch with 142 kilos, uh, even though I was not focused on the Olympic lift. At that point, I was working with a, a, a member of the national bobsled team. Uh, and I was actually, I started, you know what? Bobsleigh is something I'd, I might be able to do because I was looking at a test back then. They, they tested the power clean. I would have been among, among the top. Front squat would have been among the top. Bench press would have been up there. Uh, then 30-meter 30, 30 sprint, 60-meter sprints, and 30-meter sled push. So I figured, what well, I'm at the top in pretty much every test except for sprinting. Mm. So I'm going to start sprinting with my guy because he was sprinting with another coach twice a week. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to the track, and I'm going to sprint with him. And many football players were there also. So it was a pretty, pretty fun group. Uh, so I was essentially training like a bobsleigh guy. So I was doing my Olympic lifting, but by then I was also doing uh, strength work for the upper body. So bench pressing, military pressing, push pressing, and sprinting twice a week. Uh, and dude, that's, I mean, I was 220, not, not, I, not crazy lean, but lean enough to, you know what? It looks good. I ran a laser four five four forty, and I, I actually hit, and that was in a, in a biomechanics lab with a, a potentiometer testing the actual displacement of the center of mass, forty inches vertical jump. That, and I was snatching one forty. I was back squatting five eighty five. I was front squatting four eighty five. I was bench pressing three sixty five at the time and push pressing three fifteen. I mean, looking back. And that was like before I knew that steroids were a thing. Mm. So that was like by far. But if I could go back in time, that's how I would train. And mm. actually, actually tried to train like that again, like uh, like four months ago. Because yep. my, my goal was I want to beat my previous best forty. And mm. I reason I just need to bring my power snatch like at one hundred and twenty kilos only. Uh, my back squat like 500 and I did 500 like a, uh, like two years ago. So I, I one of problems reaching that. Uh, so my training was all geared. Like I was Olympic weightlifting. It was doing plyometrics and my, I was stupid thinking that, you know what? I can jump right into that from the years of bodybuilding work I've done and being me, I'm excessive. So I did a shit ton volume too much on that type of work. And I ended up like, hurting my adductor, hurting my vastus medialis, uh, my, my, uh, my tendon. So I said, well, you know what? Maybe I'm too old for this. I'm 45. I'm probably not going to beat my best 40. So, but yeah, that was by far, by far the best training results I got. That's the most fun I had training also. Mm -hmm. There's something really like, I mean, I love the sprint training. It, it, it really makes you feel like more of an animal, in my opinion, than pretty much anything else. Like, and if you do it properly, it does positively impact everything else you do in the gym. You know, I, I, the, old, the old track statement is that, you know, weights follow sprints, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, but that sprints won't follow weights. And, yeah. and I do think that there is something to that. Um, 
there's the, the impact forces that you're going to get with sprinting, the recruitment of tissues, the kinds of, but it's, there's also just probably things that we can't even measure that kind of come across in terms of the, who the hell even knows psychologically, uh, chemically, all of those sorts of things. Um, last question. And, and it's, uh, I think you're the perfect person for this one is when you think about the sorts of things that people will, would criticize Christian Thibodeau over, uh, what, what kinds of things come to mind and where do you think people got, like, what do you think people got wrong with their criticisms? Like, what did they miss? Well, I think that that could be interpreted many different ways, like from a personal standpoint, from a personality standpoint, or yeah. a training uh, knowledge standpoint or training method. I mean, I will address the training approach first and the personal one second. Uh, the, 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 the training one is people will say, Chris changes his mind all the time. And, and I can't argue because it's true. But that's because I just love to understand how the body works. I mean, I'm not the guy who can do bodybuilding work for his whole life. I can't do Olympic lifts for my whole life. I, I, I need variation. But I do it in a structured way. But because the only thing people know about me is my articles. Okay, so the one week I will publish an article on, on strength, one maybe on another big weight thing, maybe one week on bodybuilding. So they think that I'm changing my mind every week, although it, it, I don't. When I want to follow a training program uh, or, or, or a training cycle, it's like at least 12 weeks focusing on one goal. But I can't wait 12 weeks to write another article, right? Uh, so people think that I'm, I'm just program opping all the time, and I'm not. Mm. Uh, there are some methods to my madness, but yeah, I do experiment more than the average bear. Uh, that's probably why I was a pretty bad athlete, but a decent coach. From a personality perspective, uh, and, and people probably are surprised that I'm like, I'm a good guy, if that, if that thing makes sense. Uh, like, I don't take myself seriously. Uh, mm. I, I, if someone proves me wrong, I have zero problem admitting that I was wrong. Mm. Uh, like you made several comments on the neurotyping discussion that made me completely change my point of view uh, about the whole thing. Uh, and I don't even teach that course anymore because I, I, well, you know what? It was great superficially, but deep down inside, there's a lot more work to be done for it to be actually valid. Uh, it has probably some application for uh, human resources or corporate things, just like any psychological assessment. Uh, but from training perspective, there are a lot more under there that I need to address before apply, applying it. So that's one thing. Uh, I have zero ego and I don't feel the need to be right all the time. Mm. I actually love to learn new stuff. I think mm. that because people see me and I don't, it's not a blame on T Nation, but that's obviously what got me like quote unquote popular in the first place. Uh, and I was maybe not voluntarily, but it's maybe in the, my writing style, maybe because they always use like those jacked tank top pictures. I mean, I, I never trained in tank top ever. I always wore a hoodie. I mean, I, I'm like the lowest key person. I could be like in Mr. Olympia shape. I'm going to wear like a 4XL shirt or a hoodie. I'm, I'm not that kind of guy. Um, so people are probably would be surprised how much of 
I, I don't, I, I, okay. Real, real, real answer, real answer. I have imposter syndrome. I have imposter syndrome. I feel like I'm not worth the admiration, the respect that, that many people give me. And that might be an advantage because it forces me to stay reals, bro. Uh, so that would be it. As far as uh, uh, in person, well, people will say that I'm a lot shorter than they think I am. And I'm not as stand as they think I am. And I'm not as big. Even when I was at my biggest, I mean, right now I'm, I'm like, like, what? This morning, 197. And I hate to say this because I, I'm the one who always say that body fat numbers are not accurate. I'm around 8% body fat, like a real 8%, like a vein on absent. So I, I look good. But in, in clothes, because, and we are built a lot alike. Like we are more compact. We don't have naturally wide shoulders, like not a wide bioacromial area. Uh, so we build more like a big tube, like a fridge than like, mm-hmm. so, so in clothes, I, I don't look like wide or like I take some space. So when I give a presentation, that's why I always, even if I'm in Aruba and it's 40 degrees Celsius humid, I will wear a hoodie. <laughs> Because I feel like I'm small and psychologically it hurts my presentation. So that would be the, the things that people would be surprised of. I'm shorter and smaller than usual than they think. I'm more reals, bro, and more uh, low profile and not uh, arrogant than they think I am. And But yeah, I, I like to change my mind a lot on training. Well, I love the answer. Maybe it's just that I can relate to the answer yeah. pretty damn strongly. You know, it's funny, like... I have a very good friend in Texas and, you know, I was asking him, Hey, how do I get more people to come to my seminars or whatever? And he's like, well, you know, I think that people are intimidated by you. And he's like, they, they really shouldn't be because like when, when I see you with people in person, you're very down to earth with them. You know, you take time and work with people and you really don't act like you're different or above or any of that stuff. But for whatever reason, this, this idea that people will form, and, and it's really interesting to hear you say that because it's, it's something where I, I look at like uh, who ends up becoming successful from a long-term perspective and who doesn't. And, you know, if you've been in this industry long enough, you see plenty of people come and go. And, um, and, and I think that there has to be something inside that like isn't quite satisfied you know like if if all the needs are satisfied you'd never do anything to try to quell them you know what i mean they're already they're satisfied they're done so if something feels like it's missing if a need's not met it will continue to push you to go out and reach out and be do more so i like i'm always grateful for my insecurities in a lot of ways because i do feel like if they're not there then nothing happens. And um, you use it properly, it's a weapon. By the way, one advice for seminars, okay? And that's really not an advice, it's an observation that will make you feel better. The US is the shittiest market for seminars in the world. And I know Mm. because I've presented in 21 countries. I mean, Mm. literally, okay, and I've just done one in Florida, which was a success. But we had to plan it or start advertising five months in advance, yep. tons and tons of pushing. Uh, we actually had to cancel one because we, we only had like two months to plan. And I mean, and I've talked 
to many top guys in the industry that are friend that I'm friend with, and they all told me the same thing. Hmm. It's really hard to get people in the U.S. to come to seminars. Uh, you need to plan five, six months in advance and have a very aggressive strategy and have a local organizer that will do a lot of the legwork. And that yep. means paying them like 20, 25% of the uh, income, maybe more because it, it's a grassroots thing because people will not, or for, most of them will not travel from another state or even uh, another city. Uh, I presented once with, with Russin uh, in Seattle. We had more people there from Eastern Europe than from wow. towns other than Seattle. Yeah. That's incredible. I mean, in Europe, if I go to Europe with barely any publicity, I will get easily 40 people at like 500 euros per spot. Mm -hmm. In the US, for actually less money, we're going to have to fight with everything. <laughs> everything. It's hard to get 25. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've, I mean, the number of like top guys and I could tell you that had to cancel seminars that were extremely inexpensive because not any people registered is mind mind yeah. and that's why I actually made a decision to like almost not give any US seminars uh, because it's it's much easier to go to Europe when you have the connections uh, and you know what, it, personally, because I have like low self-esteem, it's always like, it kills me when it's hard to sell tickets. When mm -hmm. people don't like me anymore and I question <laughs> myself a lot, right? And, and it, it's, it's a shit. Then, then you have the one in your, oh, dude, you have 40 people. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Right. Uh, but it's really a matter of like knowing where to like, where to go. Uh, obviously, the best place, in my opinion, is uh, Australia and probably Asia because nobody goes there. Nobody right. goes there because it's so fucking far. Uh, but on the downside, it's so fucking far. I mean, you can't go there for one seminar. You have to plan with people who have connection and go there for like three seminars in three weeks or in two weeks to make it worthwhile because just the, the, the time zone difference, the, 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 uh, the jet lag, the experience, it, it just, it just like, it's not worth it in my opinion. And me, I, with my, my two kids, I, I actually made the decision not to travel too far away. I, I, I can like, be away for five days. I can justify that. Like if I'm going to Europe, I, I'm going to leave on like a, on a Wednesday or on a Thursday and come back on a Monday evening. I can justify that. If I'm leaving for two weeks, there's just no way, no way I'm going back home, coming back home, and my wife is still there. I uh, yeah, I, I understand every single item that you just listed there. <laughs> so it's, um, it's good to hear that though. You know, sometimes it's like, what the hell? And I, I've heard from some other people, like it's a tough time as well for that, but uh, we'll, we'll have to talk more offline on, on that particular topic. Well, one, one thing that, that would, that is a good avenue is a private seminar for staffs of high performance center. I mean, I have a few connections that I, I, we, we can talk like, offline. Yeah. But, you know, you, you go there, like there are like centers specialized in training high-level athletes. Uh, and you go there for one day or two just to teach their staff. Yep. Uh, 
So you don't have to worry about selling tickets. It's a lot, a lot easier, better mindset. People are more receptive and they are normally very qualified people. So they, mm-hmm. they can take a lot out, out of your teacher. Yeah, that, that I, you know, I did something similar uh, with some NBA staffs recently. And it yeah. was a really it, great, great environment, great experience. And yeah, it's just like, you know, when you're trying to deal with six different seminar sales going on at the same time, it pulls you too thin. And um, and I do see what you're saying about the U.S. It's just like a tough market. It's it really is pulling teeth to get people to go anywhere. Everybody wants the digital version of something. And I, call me old school, but if if I'm gonna say that you're a certified coach, I want to see that you can actually do the damn thing. Right. You know, um, I can remember years ago going to seminars that that Poliquin taught, and you know, if if you showed up looking like a bum, you're not getting anything. Right. You know, like, and he'll, he'll let you know. <laughs> like, uh, so that, that's, a, that's a different podcast, but you know, <laughs> you know, I changed my mind so much about Charles. I mean, when I was young and you were probably the same, he was like God for me, like, especially since he's French, French Canadian and nobody dared question Charles when he was at his peak. But in retrospect with what we know right now, Dude was wrong on so many things. Mm-hmm. I still respect him because he was kind of like me that he, he he's not afraid of speaking his mind, even though maybe a bit more aggressively. And, and he was willing to experiment. Yeah. And the problem is that just like me, that that's my weakness. That's why it might be irking me more than others. Is that he would try to understand why he was doing was working, which is fine. And then you mentioned that earlier. But once he made up his mind, okay, this works because of that, then it became gospel. Right. And if you question that, well, then you're an asshole. He wasn't right. that open to discussion. And the problem is that once one of these things is proven to be wrong, your credibility is kind of shot. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something. I would be more than happy to do another one of these and we'll get into, there's so many more topics to get into. And Absolutely. You know, I definitely want to hear more about your early parts of why you got into this stuff, influences, that whole thing. So we will save that for next time. Um, thank you very much. Uh, is there anything you want to plug right now? And I'll also include everything in show notes as well. I, I should, but I won't because that's not me. Yeah, I, I hear you, man. Well, listen, um, we can put that stuff in written form and attach it to this thing. Uh, won't get posted for a little bit. I'm going to do a few of these and get a, a good sense for it, but I am honored to have you as my first guest. It's been a pleasure talking with you, catching up with you. And um, thank you. It was so fun, man. Really appreciate it.